Hello to all of you listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention what I'm about to share as to how I am bringing this forth. I will seek to minister to you by speaking, seeking to speak and allow in that speaking God's Spirit to speak through me. There's a verse in 2 Peter chapter 4 that says, if any man minister, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow God to speak through us by his Holy Spirit. And to facilitate that, I cast lots on the Word of God, the Bible, where there's an equal chance for it to land in any chapter in the whole of the Word of God. Today I will be ministering from Ephesians chapter 1 for this week particularly. Now I am doing things a bit different this time because... Normally, I have about four or five different chapters I may use, depending whether I speak one, two, or three times during the week. Today is already Friday. It's possible I could also speak another message. Pardon me, it's Thursday today. It is also possible, though, I could speak another message on Saturday this week. So I will begin to share from the Word of God, but I will seek to be in a spirit of worship before God that allows me to be attuned with my spiritual ears to hear what God is dropping into me to bring forth so that it comes forth by the Spirit of God to touch you who in God's foreknowledge has come to listen to this message. This is a message, therefore, that will be not only to you as an individual, but also to the corporate body of Christ and whoever else may happen to be listening to this me message from whatever background they are. I will also seek to bring an in-depth understanding and teaching into this message as God leads. So my prayer right now is unto God, that God, the Almighty's one, the one true God, would lead and guide by his Holy Spirit me into all truth to grant revelation and understanding even as I am speaking. It would bring forth your glory and your purpose into those that are hearing this message. I will begin by reading Ephesians chapter 1, which will be the main chapter that I will minister on this week. And I received this chapter on Monday. So I could also share on what I received 
on December the 13th, which was the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. But first, before I get into that, I will just read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. 
and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What I want to share, first of all, about Ephesians chapter 1, before I touch also on the Song of Solomon, which I received this last Saturday, today being Thursday, is that what is in Ephesians chapter 1 is so ultimate in meaning because it is describing the very ultimate, consummate purpose for which the universe was created, for which you were created as an individual. And it is describing it in a way that when you begin to catch what is being said by revelation, it will bring an absolute transformation to your life. As Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field, which a man sought for, and because he so desired it, with absolute desire above all other things, when he found that treasure, he sold everything that he had that he might purchase that treasure that was buried in the field. And when you see the treasure and how ultimately valuable it is in relation to you as an individual to bring you forth to a destiny that is everlasting and ultimate in fulfillment and in fulfillments that are ever enlarging forever without end. It will cause you to want to cast away all other things, for you will find the very reason for which you were created as an individual and for which all creation was created, and in particular, this is consummated in God having a corporate bride in us human beings coming into the saving knowledge of who God is in Christ. And I will begin to share about this in Ephesians chapter 1. But first of all, I do want to touch on the Song of Solomon, which has basically the same theme typified throughout that book. It is a very poetic and romantic description of a love relationship between a bride-to-be and her husband as described by King Solomon through the Holy Spirit. And I happen to receive chapter 3 in the Song of Solomon. And I have not I have no idea now, I don't remember from way back on Saturday, 
what I wrote, but I will just begin to read the three sections on the Song of Solomon, chapter 3. In the first section, which is from verses 1 to 4, I made the following commentary. When we experience and have no evidence of God's love toward us, especially in a time of trial, it is then that we need to exercise the love that God has already established in our hearts. This involves seeking God to the degree of desperation that we disregard what others think of our desperation and hunger. That's because they can misinterpret such desperation and hunger as very abnormal, not recognizing <clears throat> that the norm is actually totally twisted and distorted and not normal. When it is evident that our hunger is to the degree that the opinion of others does not matter, and we have held nothing back in our pursuit, it is then that God will answer our hunger with his very presence in intimate fellowship with us and in the revelation of who he is, I might add. And that is the summation of what I am mentioning in the Song of Solomon in the first four chapters of that chapter. And it, wouldn't, and it would be good, I believe, to go to that particular passage of scripture right now and read it. So I will go to the Song of Solomon and go to chapter three and read those verses. And it says this, and remember this is all a symbolisms of, that reflect the far deeper spiritual truth in the natural description here. By night in my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and in the broadways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. And so we see the yearning of a lover that will pay any price to find her bridegroom and vice versa, the bridegroom to find the bride. In this case, it's the bride seeking the bridegroom, which typifies the corporate body of Christ and us also as individuals who come to that place of recognizing that everything in this temporal realm is so empty and meaningless and temporal. And we begin to then recognize the true source of everlasting life, which is held in that ultimate quality of love, which I will not go into describe at this point in time because the word of God clearly describes that God is love. And so it is very important as I go on in this message that I give those that are new an understanding 
of the very being of who God is. Because God is love, but there needs to be a great understanding of this love. Now I go on in the Song of Solomon chapter 3 here to read the commentary just on verse 4. Saw ye him whom my soul loveth, and then it goes on, and here's verse 4, but a little while that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. And so in this passage, the commentary I said for the last part of verse 4 is this, our love now should cleave to the Lord in intimacy of fellowship with God and not let that fellowship be diminished, but pursued to greater intimacy until we know that we have fully poured out truth of who we are and all related to us, to God. So verse 4 is describing basically how when we find a relationship that is genuine and real with God, that we enter in then to pursuing that relationship into full intimacy. And that we pursue that by being very honest and humble and transparent. That involves letting God know everything about us and all related to us. As the word of God says, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. And when we come before God to meet with him in prayer, it is important that we are always in a place of humility that leads us to a place of total honesty and vice versa, in a place of honesty and uprightness that leads us to a place of total humility so that we can be totally vulnerable and open and transparent to the light, allowing the light to do its work of exposing the darkness in our lives that is not of God, that our whole being might come in to the place of receptivity to the light of God that dispels the shadows until the fullness of his light arises in us to reflect forth his glory to touch the lives of others. And then in verse 5, and that's as far as I've gone in this particular passage of scripture before getting into Ephesians. It says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. And what I said in this regards is this, it is then that we know our authority in Christ and command and rebuke with authority all that would take away from what pleases God. When we enter into a place of intimate fellowship with God, where we allow his light to dispel the darkness in our lives by being in that place of humility and honesty that comes out of the fear of God and comes out of entering into the fear of God of the reverencing of God, then what happens is we begin to have an identity in God that causes us to know his authority in us so that we can rise up 
against all that would take away from the glory of God, that would misrepresent the glory of God. There are so many that try to get others to do things their way, claiming that their way is the way that pleases God. You need to go to a Bible school and get all of this intellectual knowledge in your head or God can't use you. But when we know a relationship with God, we can see what is merely intellectual and outward and does not carry the essence of reality but only has the shell of what inwardly can be totally empty and the opposite. As Christ said of the Pharisees that were so religious, though outwardly you make long prayers and like to be seen of men, inwardly your heart is filled with hate and murder and fornication and adultery. It is the reality of what we become on the inside that God is after. For that will bring forth genuine fruit in the outside even in the midst of pressure. The pressure will only be used to bring us into a greater transformation rather than to manifest thorns and those things that are destructive and that reveal that the essence of one be one's being is in fact uh, in a state that is destructive that is hell, and that would turn heaven into hell for others around them. Now I want to go to Ephesians and begin to share on this amazing passage of Scripture. So now I am turning back to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> and trusting that God will by his Spirit guide us now so that even as I'm speaking, there will be the spirit of revelation and teaching and in prophecy. First of all, the first five verses of Ephesians, but before I get into the first five verses of Ephesians and so on, I just want to mention that the real theme verse in this passage is the statement that we should be to the praise of his glory. And to the praise of his glory, this statement is repeated a number of times and has far more meaning than what would appear outwardly. Paul the Apostle, in this first five verses, this is what I said, those that are in Christ have entered heavenly places where they have experienced being blessed with spiritual blessings by abiding in Christ. God had chosen us individually and as the corporate body of Christ to experience and enter into these spiritual blessings before the creation of the worlds, so that by them we would be holy and blameless before God in love by the spiritual blessings that he wants us to enter into. God pre-marked our path and circumstances to bring us to the place of conversion where we were adopted as children because this was the very pleasure of his heart. 
That is a summation of what is in the first five verses there. It says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. This is talking about God the Father. Paul the Apostle is addressing those that are living holy lives. They're called saints. And that's an understanding of what saints are. They are those that have come to a place of freedom from being manipulated by the temporal baits of this world. By coming to a place of knowing God's power so working in their lives that they are able to walk with thoughts and motives in their heart that are pure. Does that mean they're ultimate, that they don't even have one iota? No, not necessarily, but that overall there is very little deviation in the motives and the thoughts of the heart and the way they live. This is who Paul is addressing, but he's also addressing those that haven't entered into that because he talks about those that are faithful in Christ Jesus as opposed to those that are saints. He says to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful. So there are those that are persevering and will also enter into a place of holiness in their lives. We are living in a day and an age today where the word of God is twisted to imply that we cannot know what it is to live holy lives, that no one is perfect, that one cannot enter into perfection to live a holy life. But the word of God prophesies that in the last days, people would have a form of godliness, but would deny the power thereof. What was that? The power to live a holy life. And we in these last days need to again come to realize the power there is to have victory over all of those things that would bring us into bondage, that would cause our motivations to be skewed, to be manipulated by mere temporal desires. When we catch a vision of this treasure that it was talked about, it will liberate us from that bondage that robs us from knowing the abundance of life also in this present world. For Christ came to give us life more abundantly. And that can also be experienced in this present world, even in the midst of being tortured by people that have captured us and thrown us in prison. There are many of those that have gone before us, such as Wormbrandt, who was tortured for Christ, that knew in a dungeon where he never saw the light of day for months and months and months, the glory of God filling the dungeon and filling him with the comfort of God's presence and the revelation of his glory. Today, God is calling us to be saints, 
But we need to recognize in this passage of Scripture here the importance of Paul's addressing the grace and the peace that comes from God the Father, and that it's from God as the Father, as it says in verse 3, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So I want to address the understanding of God as the Father, and actually of God. And as I had mentioned, I will also describe at this point an understanding for those that are new of God, the very being of God in love. First, I will explain that one of the names that is used for God is the word Elohim, which the word El means almighty, and Ohim is a plurality, so it's almighties. And since there's the clear understanding that God is one, for example, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It is the Almighty's one, Elohim. For example, in Genesis it says, Let us make man in our image. That is God speaking within the triunity of himself. Does that mean that we believe in three gods? No. Far, that is the farthest from the truth. There is only one true God. And one of the names used to address God is Elohim. So now I want to describe how there is this understanding of the Almighty's one true God. Why, why there is plurality? There is this understanding. There are three ultimate aspects to existence. That which is beyond time and space, that which is in time and space, which is the creation realm, and that which fills all space. God, if he is truly almighty, must be able to govern in conscious intelligence in personality, in other words, beyond the time and space realm. If God cannot be in personage, in conscious intelligence, beyond the time and space realm, then he would cease to be almighty. Therefore, God must be in personage within that realm. As such, God governs beyond the time and space realm as the Father. The word Father basically means originator and has the understanding also of one that sees the end from the beginning. Father speaks of one that has experience through time. And God as the Father is the originator that governs beyond the time and space realm and can see the end from the beginning of the creation realm. That is why Christ said that no man knows the day nor the Father, but my Father which is in heaven. Because this one true God as the Father governs in that aspect. God as the Son, the word Son means expression. The Son is the full expression of the Father or of the originator that is beyond the time and space realm 
into the time and space realm. If God could not be in personage in the time and space realm, in conscious intelligence with his omniscience and his omnipresence, he would not be God, for he would be limited again if he could not be in personage over his creation and in his creation to relate to his creation, which he created to relate with. Otherwise, there would have been no purpose to creating. So God governs in the time and space realm and is known as God the Son in that aspect of government in personage. And then God is known as God the Holy Spirit that fills all space. As the Holy Spirit, God can be omnipresent in personage at all places at the same time and appear in more than one place at the same time in personage and cause his creative activity to take place at many places at the same time. For his presence, by his spirit, is attached to every particle of existence that he has created. You could actually watch a video on my website at ultimatemeaning.com of an interview with a man that is not even a Christian from the things he says. He is a physicist that is an expert in that field and discusses all about the major new discoveries in particle physics. And his conclusion from all the mathematics is that there is pervading all space what appears to be like the neurons in a brain. Even where there is nothing in outer space, it exists. This is what they've discovered from splitting the atomic structure apart with, the, for example, the big Hadron Collider, the $16 billion project that took 16 years to build and is colliding particles. And I can't go into it here for time. It's very interesting to talk about, but I forbear. Except that the temperature, and there's a million explosions a minute, temperature is 100,000 times greater than the center of the sun. And they're taking pictures of these continually with computers. They go into computer systems around the world to analyze when they do these explosions, these collisions of particles at the speed of light, and analyze them in chambers colder than outer, at, as cold as the coldest place in outer space, and in uh, tremendous magnetic forces thousands times greater than what's on the earth. And they have analyzed it. They know there are very real dimensions that exist that are just as real as this, as this physical realm and more real, in fact. But the whole thing with all of this is this, is that this physicist, recognizing all of these dimensions, recognizes that there is, from the analysis of all of this math, the thing that makes the most sense is that there is an intelligence like the neurons of a brain that is attached to everything that exists. So it's no wonder that it's nothing for God to raise the dead and to reverse atoms that have 
been dispersed throughout every part of the sea as people have decayed. So here we are again back to describing the triunity of God. As the Holy Spirit, he fills all face, space. So we got God. God must be a personage beyond time and space to be God. As the Father, he is, and God must be a personage in time and space, and as the Son, he is, and God must be a per in personage to fill all space, and as the Holy Spirit, he is. And only as such would God be truly almighty, and as such it is a plurality with an understanding of it being one true God, and that is why I describe him as the Almighty's one, Elohim, meaning El with a plurality. Now, I just want to describe also in this that God also is, called, is said, it says in 1 John, God is love more than once. And this is the highest form of love. And I could go into great depth here describing God's being of love, but I forbear for time to do this passage of Scripture, except I will describe it briefly. Love is a quality that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of fulfillment and gratification. It always chooses the highest lasting good. It also is totally free in its choice. It is the source of its own action. It is not receiving input from an outside source. It is completely self-originating and the creator of its own destiny. We were created as self-originating beings, not as robots, because therein is the capacity to love or to freely choose. Now, I can't go into this in depth. It's an in-depth teaching that could take hours, but I want to share this. That God's being, in, in free will, there is the potential to choose what is less than the highest lasting good. And at that moment, there's a destructive principle in the one that makes those choices, and they are self-responsible for those choices because they are self-originating and the creator of their own destiny. Therefore, God cannot be blamed for creating the devil or evil, as we are the source of our own action. We are self-originating beings. But in God's being of love, there is total freedom of choice, but that freedom is always choosing the highest lasting good, and therefore has a quality that is innate, that is like unto a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest thought, word, or deed that would be less than choosing the highest lasting good. God's being is a perfection of love that will not condone the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to it. And that aspect of his being is like a blazing fire of love that has total integrity, such, such absolute purity and integrity that it devours with judgment the slightest that is contrary to it. 
That is the defensive aspect of the being of God who is love. And if God was not that way, he would have corruption in him and would self-destruct over time, and so would the universe. But because God's being is totally holy, and that's what this love is, this absolute integrity of, of purity in God's love is the holiness of God or the defensive aspect of his love. And that only can be entrusted to hold ultimate unlimited life and power without causing that life and power to be corrupted and dissipate or to corrupt God himself. In fact, this is indicative that God is the very life source and source of unlimited life and power that is held in a state without corruption that is totally constructive onto greater and greater meaning and fulfillment it is always enlarging as it goes on in creative expression. Love has a quality that always wants to express love. And so he created man. So now I have given you part of the understanding of God's love. But the other aspect that is the ultimate aspect of this love in its purity is that this purity which is the foundation that allows God to express his love and ultimate creativity without corruption. And that is ultimately created in love. That without violating its integrity has the power to provide us who have sinned against God, who have made choices that are destructive, and thus been cut off from God as God cannot condone what is contrary to his love. God's love is so perfect that it can be transcendent out of this purity without contract, con, without con, contradicting his purity, can be transcendent with the power to assure destiny by the power to provide forgiveness, to show mercy. And that is only possible by God himself becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice. Man could never be a perfect atoning sacrifice because the only one that could be a substitute for our sins to take judgment upon himself would have to live a perfect and a sinless life. And so when Christ was on the earth, he was tempted, as the word of God says, in all points as we are, and yet without sin. And in doing that, he, as it were, took the first man, Adam, and through his obedience and union with God the Father, and resisting sin, took him and, as it were, nailed that first man, Adam, on the cross in which the whole human race came out of, and therefore is, and by doing so, made it possible for us to be forgiven. He humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. He suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you could repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. And he conquered death. 
He rose from the dead. And I could go in again and talk a lot more in detail about this. But how he'd never lost his union with God the Father when he was crucified on the cross, even though he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That does not mean that he lost union with, for he is God, with God the Father. He was always in union. He said, into thy hands I command my spirit on the cross. It's, it's too much to describe in detail here, but his spirit was in a state of selfless trust in the Father through it all, even in experiencing the forsaking of God's presence and judgment. His spirit was abiding in the Father in selfless trust, which is a state of absolute purity, like an open hand as opposed to a clenched fist represents a state of selfless trust. And that's why it says in Romans 1.4 that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness because he maintained his spirit of holiness on the cross and absorbed that judgment without falling into rebellion against God the Father for he was in total selfless trust of God the Father to raise him from the dead and commended his spirit unto God the Father, and therefore he rose from the dead and absorbed the judgment of all creation and of all creation with free will, such as man has and we have, so that if we repent, we can receive his mercies. And if God did not have the power to assure forgiveness and mercy, it would imply that he created a creation without purpose, which would imply that God is imperfect. And we know that God is not. He is the ultimate perfection of love that contains, that is what contains unlimited life and unlimited power that is ever enlarging forever in creative expressions of fulfillment. And in this passage in Ephesians, we are looking at an amazing description of the greatness of all of this. It is the very meaning and purpose of the universe. Have you recognized that everything in the universe has male and female counterparts, which reflects this ultimate purpose, which is that God would have a corporate bride that he could be married to and fully inhabit and rule the universe through onto greater and greater enlargement as time goes on in creative expression through his corporate bride. I don't, I know I would end up talking for a long time here. And I forbear to do that. So I will go on and just uh, read this passage of scripture here. It goes on to say, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love even before the world was created, God chose us to be holy and without blame before him in love. His desire is that he would have us in a total intimate fellowship with him that is totally pure, without corruption, 
where that love has nothing in it that can cause tension, torment, or ripple effects that are corrupt, totally pure, ever-enlarging in fellowship. He decided that this would be before he even created this world, that this was his ultimate purpose, a corporate bride. And so he pre-marked our path that would bring us to the place where we'd be adopted as children by Jesus Christ to himself. Those that come to the place of genuine conversion are those that can know that the things that happened in their lives were being used to bring them to that place of recognizing the emptiness of their life, that it is not going to be found in any of the temporal baits of this world. We were created in the image of God to only find fulfillment that is ultimately satisfying in what is ultimate reality, which is who God is, another name for God is Yahweh, which means the self-existent one, also known as Yehovah. In fact, God states, I am that I am, which is another way of describing that he is ultimate reality. And it is only ultimate reality that can satisfy the inner core of our being. We have a God-shaped vacuum. But as long as we are cut off because of our rebellion and sin against God, there is a vacuum in us that is like a black hole in outer space that is always trying to suck everything in around it to fill up and satisfy that black hole. But nothing of the temporal things in this world will ever satisfy it. Nothing of the principles of false religion that always have their trust in self as opposed to God will ever satisfy only coming to the place of recognizing what is our true life source, which is through the atoning work of God to provide us mercy without violating the purity and the, or the holiness of his love. So he's predestinated us to be adopted this was the pleasure of his will, it's saying, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now that's a powerful statement there. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And in this commentary that I made on these passages, I want to go into what I wrote on this. I'm going to go to um, this now. The reason for God choosing us is because this would bring pure love and worship and praise focused towards the grace and out of the grace and the glory that is the very essence of who God is and especially towards us. Now that sounds very complicated what I wrote there but remember these are just rough fast notes. It was the pleasure of God's heart that this would bring pure love in worship, in a, 
and this worship is in a praise focused towards the grace that is in God. Now, I already described this grace in God. The grace in God is that aspect of the being of God's love that has the power to provide mercy and forgiveness without violating the purity of his love, the integrity of his love that requires judgment. And that was manifested, of course, on the cross. But it is a very part of the very being of who God is. The grace of God is an expression of God's being of love, of who God is to us in his ultimate expression of love to us, to have died on the cross and become a perfect atoning sacrifice so that he could bring to us not only mercy, but in the mercy favor. And mercy with favor is grace. The Hebrew word uses the word mercy and has the understanding of favor in it. In the New Testament, there is the word mercy and the word grace used separately. But when you put them together, you have the full meaning of grace. It's not only that God has shown great mercy to us who deserved hell, but that within that mercy, there, it has abounded with favor toward us. But this is actually the very being of God's love, this grace, being expressed to us. And it will cause, when we really see who God is to us personally, great genuine worship from our heart in praise unto God. This involves a deep turning in the heart. It starts out of the fear of God, which is the choice to recognize God for who God truly is. And what often brings people to the place where they fear God is when they, like the prodigal son, come to the end of themselves and see how deceived they have been to themselves and to others and how loathing that is and see how deceiving others have been to them and see how loathing that is and see the deception of those that have offered false beliefs to justify their own independence in rebellion against God. And they loathe the emptiness and the deception of their lives to the point that they don't want anything but what's ultimately real, what's ultimately trustworthy. So a hunger forms in them that causes them to have an openness towards truth. And when that happens, they choose to recognize what is ultimately real, which is only in this these two aspects of the being of God's love that I've described, the first being the holiness of God, that is the integrity of his love. There is, whether it's intellectually understood or semi-conscious, there is the awareness in the heart that there has to be a reality that is of such a quality that will not tolerate the slightest that is corrupt, that is contrary to love. Love being that which always chooses the highest good. Even one's conscience is an inner compass that points toward what one innately knows is good, which is that which is always choosing the highest lasting good. And so we see things within the realm around us that point to what 
is pointing to higher and higher good onto the highest lasting good, which is this quality of being, of the ultimate perfection of love that in the negative aspect, so to speak, is requiring judgment because it is so pure in this love. But if that was all it was, there would be no hope, no meaning, no purpose, nor destiny. This love has to be great enough to be transcendent with the power to provide mercy. That is only possible in recognizing in the being of God that there must be the moral capacity to have the power to forgive without contradicting the integrity of his love. And that's only possible in God himself, absorbing judgment upon himself by becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice for us. For it would not be within the creature to have that power. And if the creature could save us, we would be worshiping the creature and giving glory to the creature instead of to God. And so... God has, as it were, in his being the ultimate negative and positive of the universe. And what happens when there's a negative and positive? The shell is broken. Most people understand the workings of electricity in the atom. That around the nucleus of the atom, electrons spin at a very high speed, forming a shell. And the only thing that can break that hard shell, that hard spin, is when there is a negative and a positive. And when there is that negative and positive, that hardness is broken and there's the flow of life and of energy and of power. Likewise, our heart is hard with the spin of our own world. The deception of independence from God and false beliefs that justify it. What breaks it is coming to the place of finally recognizing this ultimate negative that requires judgment that is so pure in love, but that there is from that foundation of the negative, the positive in the shape of the cross, the positive symbol, which is God's love being so great that he condescended and suffered more than you, a mere creature, because he loved you so much and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God and be part of his corporate bride that would be without blame and holiness before him forever. And so when I am describing this statement to the praise of the glory of his grace, what I am describing is this, is that when one comes to the place of true conversion, it is because they have come to the place of the genuine fear of God that chooses to recognize God in his holiness for who he truly is and in his mercy for who he truly is that is transcendent out of his holiness. And when they recognize that, there will be a deep turning from the heart. This is not some intellectual ascent. This is a deep turning from the heart. 
It cries out and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and sees their utter undoneness and how they deserve hell and judgment and the greatness of God's mercy to them personally. So that there is a true circumcision in their heart, a rending of their heart that takes away the hard shell that has veiled the eyes of their heart from seeing God as their treasure that treasure buried in the field and his purpose that is in him having a corporate bride which they can be a part of. And brothers and sisters, when there is that true turning in the heart and you see that treasure because the veil of the heart is taken away out of that deep turning that is birthed out of the fear of God, that choice to recognize God in his holiness and in the greatness of his mercy to you personally, you will experience God's Spirit come to dwell in you as you ask him to forgive you and cleanse you of all your sin through his life's blood poured out in his love on the cross for you in the full expression of himself that is his only begotten son for you. And then you will want to do nothing but just worship God. And you will find great pleasure in it as you behold with the eye of your heart the glory of his grace, which is the actual expression of his love and grace of his being in love to you. And so it's when you're to the praise of the glory of his faith his grace, that this verse says that you are accepted in the beloved because it's at that point that you have truly received his grace and reciprocated his love and been born again or brought forth in you by the Spirit of God to become his son, his child. There is so much in this passage, and I know time is going on. And it is probably getting way beyond an hour that I've been preaching or teaching. But I want to continue on for a bit here. And so he goes on to say here in verse 8, where any hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So it is out of his grace that he also abounds towards us in all wisdom and prudence. And so I just want to... Um, make some commentary on that. It is in this same grace, which is the issuance of the quality of God's being of love, that there is the abounding of wisdom and prudence towards us, which is the right application of knowledge in a direction that is fully constructive on the ultimate purpose, meaning in life. This right application of knowledge in this way involved revealing what was hidden by God, which is God's ultimate delight and purpose, of which we are the focus of material and process towards. It is that all the history of the world come to ultimate consummate meaning and purpose in the bringing forth of the oneness of all, of all God's creation throughout the universe, an intimate love of oneness in Christ in God. That is what is being expressed in verse 8 to 10, and I will read that now. So I read, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will 
according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now I want to share something here, particularly for those that are new. The fact that God created us with our own free will to be the source of our own action I mentioned means that there is the potential of hell by being created that way. God's purpose is to bring us out of that potential of hell and make that potential totally immune. And that happens through receiving the perfect atoning work of God in Christ. Now, people might say, well, God's ultimate purpose is this corporate bride, but why wouldn't he, why would he allow all of this suffering, including all of those that will be in hell forever and ever in torment, way worse than the worst torment in this world, and it going on forever and ever? Should God deny the very essence of his being, which is love, and make mere robots which could not be able to have fellowship with God or with one another? Should he deny the essence of who he is because those of their own free will that are the creators of their own destiny freely choose to reject his love when they have the opportunity to choose it? Should he therefore not create or have any ultimate purpose? because of that possibility of eternal hell and suffering? No. The ultimate purpose is far greater than those that of their own free will choose to reject it. It is like unto building a house that God can inhabit, us being the stones that make up the house. In the process of building the house, there is the shedding of material, but it is insignificant compared to the purpose of the house for God to inhabit and for us to partake of with God in fellowship or for God to have a corporate bride. It is insignificant compared to the ultimate purpose of the house. The reality is that for there to be ultimate meaning and purpose and the experience of this love, there must always be free will which carries the potential of those that will reject God's love. Corruption will not be allowed in heaven. People that have hell in their heart would turn heaven into hell. And so I share that. So God's ultimate purpose. And in this world, we can look at it this way too. All the deceptive belief systems that have come out of rebellion against God that started with Cain when he was offended at the curse and began to perceive God in a distorted way as somehow being holy and controlling and lost sight of the goodness of God behind the holiness of God. That is the integrity of his love. And so had 
a perception of God that was demanding and controlling and that required him to bring of his own self-effort. And I can't go into that for time now. And so out of Cain comes false religion. Religions that are controlling and demanding or that go the other way and are totally justifying every immorality and every false belief and receiving all in a false unity, which violates the integrity of love that cannot contain life because it has corruption in it. The world is like a filtering system. There's many false beliefs. Our body has a filtering system in the intestines. And the food we eat goes in to the body and is processed. But a small amount of that food passes through the filtering system of the intestine to become a lasting part of the body. And so likewise, those that are hungry for the truth will not be satisfied with the delusions of false belief systems but will continue to hunger for that treasure till they find it and will discover the truth ends up in ultimate reality, which is manifested in the I am that I am, the one true God, the Almighty's one Elohim, God who is love, revealed ultimately in his grace on the cross so that you could be reconciled to God. The chief cornerstone of the building is Jesus Christ, God expressed to his creation. Christ said, whoever has learned of the Father comes to me. And he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father, for the word Son means expression. It is the expression of God in this creation realm and relating to this creation realm to you and me. And so we relate to God through Jesus Christ in fellowship with God the Father also. Now, as we continue in this passage, there is so much more to share. And I will go on and have to share this at another time as I am sure this message is now gone. And I'll just see how long I've been speaking. Yes, I've been speaking for an hour and 11 minutes thus far. And there's much more to share. So I may decide to share more of this at another time as there is so much more to share. But I do want to emphasize the verse here again. In verse 9 and 10, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. And what is that mystery? It's the next verse. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. It is all things coming into oneness in Christ. And we see in this passage that that is ultimately consummated in his corporate bride. Oh, I wish I could share more on this, but we'll share another time. Verse 22 says that he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. This is not some 
hierarchical organization. This is a living organism led by the Spirit of God under Christ as the head, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We are soon coming to this consummate purpose in history where God will bring forth his corporate bride. And God, by his Spirit, is calling every church to come out of their shells of denominationalism and division and to cast them off. Why would you limit God? Why would you not want to receive others as Christ received us as sinners that may believe a bit different than you? We need to start our church services on our knees and on our faces in the fear of God until our hearts break and melt before God out of reverence for who he is and then rise out of that humility in a purity of worship and of a baptism of love that causes us to be to the praise of his glory, to really express that praise out of a purity of seeing his love in which is expressed in grace for who he is to us personally and corporately, that will cast off these shells of denominationalism, these shells of control where the leadership won't let the members of the body function. Paul the Apostle makes it clear that God gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. In other words, when there is no control and the leadership allows the Holy Spirit to move through the body as it pleases him and Christ to come down and be head over his body, God will be able to pour a greater gift on those that are less attractive, that it would humble those that tend to be looked up to, so that the mountains are brought down and the valleys are raised and the crooked places are made straight and the rough places are made smooth. Then all flesh shall see the glory of God and his fullness will come into his body as described here. And as when his fullness comes into his bride, that there is authority in his bride to rise up in authority and to conquer their community, their city, and their nation. How does that start? That starts by God's house being a house of prayer, and we are, where we are more conscious of God in our midst out of the reverence and godly fear that is in our hearts than we are of the leader or of others. So that control is broken, and so that God can move as it pleases through his body. And so we see that the Song of Solomon that we talked about becomes a reality where we rise up in authority to say and rebuke all that would take away from the expression of God's glory. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message. Until we meet again, thank you for listening.